I've been accumulating a thousand thousand piece puzzles and I'm, and and I, and I have I have a thousand one thousand piece puzzles and um I'm going to put together one piece from each puzzle and I think that in that combined puzzle there will be the hidden answer to the cure for corona I think that there's a hidden message within the puzzles <laughs> Hi, uh, welcome to Movie Bites. I'm Arnie Joe. I'm Dane. Yeah, Dane. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, we're, we're changing the format. This is the episode two of season two, and we thought we'd shake things up a little bit. So we're all we're all locked inside. It's starting to get cold in some parts of the world. It's starting to get warm in others. But yet we can't go outside. So we, we figured out a way to give you more content. Um, what did we watch this week, Dane? Well, we watched the Pusher trilogy. Yep. We watched uh, Pusher 1, Pusher 2, and Pusher 3. And uh, as a change to things, we're actually going to be uh, releasing them as separate episodes. So, you know, three times this week, you will be uh, There's cursed. just so much to say. I know, fucking cursed with uh, <laughs> with more more content. Um, generally, you know, we're, we're probably going to be... We're more likely going to be doing two a week uh, in this new format, but I think... You hadn't seen these films, and we kind of thought, "Fuck it, we'll watch all three. So, you know, we uh, we've got three episodes for you. Um, well, it's a bit weird this time, Dane, because the first one is actually the worst one um, right. in terms of mathematics. So, oh, really? Yeah. Um, okay. This has a lower critical score and audience score. However, I figured out why, and um, I didn't really want to adjust for inflation and all that sort of stuff because I thought it was interesting to figure out why this might be less um, liked. But this does have a larger critical consensus. There is more information, more reviews for this film. So it's actually brought the score down, if that makes sense. Right, okay. So it's (laughs) they're all actually probably quite similar, but because this one has more reviews... Um, the actual numbers are lower. Um, do you want to give a, uh, a cryptic description of the plot for this one? Yeah. So Pusher takes place during, uh, one chaotic week in the life of a mid-level drug dealer in, where are they? D- Danish, are they Pol- Polish or Eastern Europe? It's, it's, it's Denmark. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which and, I don't um, think is Eastern Europe. But, you know. Yeah, it is. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of it, really. I mean, he he hangs around with his mate, Mads Mikkelsen, and, um, and then he has a, a deal that goes wrong, uh, and then he has a few days to get the money together, and it just follows the, the, those chaotic events. Cool. So, uh, yeah, it's, he basically borrows money from his, his boss slash friend Milo. And um, it's like one of those films where everything that could go wrong possibly does go wrong. Um, yeah, I, I, think you're, I think you're kind of on the money with not really being able to say too much about it. Um, it. It is also about his relationship with his girlfriend and kind of about how he treats everyone in his life. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, it goes a lot deeper. Uh, you know, it definitely, it, it definitely goes a lot deeper. It's not like, it, it's not like crank, you know, that, that premise makes it sound like it could be a film like crank or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it, it's definitely got a lot more going on than, than that. Yeah. What did you, um, what did you think of Pusher overall? Um, I really liked it. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. What did you think? Um, I, I, I really liked it. Um, it's, it's not my favorite of the trilogy, but this one is, I think the most conventional of the three. Um, it really does follow a, and I think it's reflected in how brief your description of it was. This does follow a quite standard, uh, crime thriller archetype, if you know what I mean. Um, which means it's thrilling and enjoyable, um, and keeps you on the edge of your seat for all, you know, for a lot of it, because everything compounds and everything's going wrong one after the other. It just, it becomes cringe. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those cringe films, um, not cringe as in like, Oh fuck. Oh, this sucks. Cringe as in like, it's hard to watch because you kind of know it's kind of set up very early on that this is the sort of thing where you know nothing is going to go well from the outset you know and yeah so the main character frank he's he's sort of like uh i I took him as a dude who doesn't really have anything to live for Mm. like he just deals drugs to get money you know he seems like he he enjoys the the criminal lifestyle but more as what it represents symbolically like it's it's like a masculine thing to be right um but he doesn't really have anything else he has his one shit mate uh who's like mads mickelson who plays like this manic skinhead oh, well i don't think he's a skinhead he's just got no hair um and then he's got a girlfriend who he says isn't his girlfriend because she's a prostitute but um, you can tell that he's kind of in love with her, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think this guy has the capability of love. I think I think he I think he uh, I think he cares for her in some way or mm-hmm. knows that he should. But I don't know the from watching him from the beginning of the film, it's very hard for me to see him as someone that could say he loves someone. Really? Um, See, because I read it as the the other way. I felt like he did love her, but <clears throat> he was trying to, um, you know, like in the car where um, uh, Tony, uh, who is uh, uh, Mads Mikkelsen's character, says to him, um, you know, he, he meets her and then says, do you fuck her? And he's like, yeah, it's kind of bragging. And then he's like, is that your girlfriend? And then he's like, no, I'd never date a whore. And I kind of got the impression, but by then, like his interaction with her in that he does have a, like a, a boyfriend, girlfriend type relationship with her, or is at least fighting, uh, in and out of one, but doesn't want to because of the impression that that would give other people like he there's it's like the social norms in the world that he comes from says that you need to treat women like shit 
Yeah, you have to treat women like shit because you're a man, because you're a criminal. And so he can't really give into his real feelings. Yeah, no, I I, I think you might be right. I, I, I totally forgot of the there's the there's only one real moment where he honestly, genuinely shows that he cares. I think he buys her a present at one mm. point in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's any real reason why he does it. And like, you know, sociopaths and people who are manipulative can do these sort of things. But I, but I think there it is kind of loaded that he cares. But outside of that, every single interaction he has with her, he's using her or she's just complicit in what's going on. So I don't know, it kind of... I think I don't like him very much. I think he's a very unlikable character. I don't. Did you did you feel sorry for him throughout this film? Um, yeah, I, I did. Not not particularly though. Like a lot of terrible things happened to him, that would make me feel awful for any normal person. Right. But because he he's just he's quite despicable, that when things went wrong for him, I didn't care that much. But again, like. And like I, yeah, I got the impression that um, that yeah, he kind of was um, wanting a a normal happy life underneath. Again, like he has the conversation with Milo's um, bodyguard, and when he starts, not him, but Milo's bodyguard starts talking about wanting to get out of the life, and and um, have a normal life and and open a restaurant and um just the the reaction that frank has when he starts talking about that um was just another you know drip in that puddle of making me think that this guy has probably uh, he's like 35 or something like that has probably got into this life early on enjoyed all the benefits of it of drinking drugs partying and stuff and is now starting to get older get slower and start to think about something else and this girl's making him think about that but his prejudicial beliefs about the man he's supposed to be stop him from trying anything else because he has plenty of opportunities like towards the end where um he invites her to run off to Spain with him because he's trying to get away from the gangsters that are after him. But then he sorts it out um, and and then decides to stay. He does seem to be genuinely relieved when they're in the, the cab together leaving. Yeah, you know but, I mean? I, but that's a but that but it's double loaded. Is he relieved because he's getting because he's not dying? And because the, you know, Milo isn't winning or whatever, or is he relieved because he's getting out with the girl? And and I, to, to be honest, if you take out that one scene where he buys her something, I think it's very hard to really stick by the fact that he, that he wants out. I don't know. Like there's also the thing where he's, he like goes on a date with her and he's holding her hand yeah, and then she's talking about, um, how she doesn't want or not that uh, she doesn't want to be a prostitute um but she got gets offended because someone thinks she's a prostitute but she's actually a champagne girl and he was like isn't that just an expensive prostitute and then she kind of feels bad and then she goes i could be somebody if i want and then they have a fight and then they're sitting in the cab 
And then he says something like, um, if you're happy, then what does it matter? And he didn't have to offer her that, you know, uh, trying to make her, he was trying to make her feel better. He didn't, he didn't have to do that, uh, but he had, a, he had a genuine feeling of guilt there and didn't like seeing her feeling sad. Yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, but to be fair to you, I think like my idea was, is that I think it's meant to be deliberately vague because there's no, there's no lines of dialogue that he, he never like turns it to his friend and says, you know, Tony, sometimes I think about getting out of this life and, no. uh, there's, there's nothing like that. In fact, there's, um, there's a lot of things that he does that like, they just happen. And then you just assume like, okay, that's what he's thinking. To be, to be perfectly honest, I, you know, again, I think it's as much as it is kind of inherent for him to kind of treat women like shit. I think there's also, it, it could be inherent that he knows that if he wants to get what he wants, he needs to try and try a little bit. Through the whole thing, the main thing that I got, like, I I hate him, right? He's the most infuriating right. character ever. He fucking, <laughs> he's, he, his, he, lack of, how, how much time did he have after losing that money? How much time did he have to sort something out? And what did he do? He just sat around. If anything... I think he wants to die. Mm. You know, like... It, yeah, I definitely put him in the depression category. Yeah, it's it doesn't seem like he's trying to get out. Like, if he really was trying... If he wanted to get out, he had multiple opportunities. Um, I think it's, it's more... It's about a character who's given up, you know? And just even even how he's dealing at one point when the, 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 the henchman for Milo gets in the car and just how little he seems to give a fuck about the, yeah. he the heaviness of the situation. I think he mm. kind of wants out, you know, and, and throughout the film, he's kind of leading himself there till, you know, at the end, we kind of get an ambiguous ending. Um, mm. But I kind of have a, a, an opinion on what happens, but I don't know. It's, he keeps, he keeps setting himself up for that failure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, like the idea that he he sets himself up for these things. Um, he's always, I guess you could say he's always cutting a fine line because uh, on the first day, like you said, the, the film takes place over seven days and the days are kind of broken up like chapters. Like they even have title cards. Um, and on the first day you see him doing, uh, like making a deal, uh, doing a drug deal trade and um uh and then they they get the money and then him and tony just go out and get wasted um and for the deal he got what was it like was it fifty thousand or 45 or something i don't know um yeah and anyway and then you find out once he goes back to milo um that he owes this guy this drug kingpin a dude who, you know, could kill him. He owes him like fifty thousand. Yeah. So uh, the money that he got fifty thousand whatever to him. fifty thousand whatever their currency is, and yeah, and the money. So the money that he got from that dude, uh, 
for, from the trade. He should have just given to this guy because he's not a guy that you want to owe money to. But he wanted to go out and get wasted with his friend. And he's like, you find out that he's like always owing and he's always about to be paying this guy back. And then he, but he never gets ahead. He's always like just a little bit behind. And then his actions seem to dictate that he does that shit on purpose. And then when he has ample time to get well ahead, he chooses not to. He just sort of, yeah, like you said, he just sits around like waiting for shit to get really bad. And and then he does something at the last minute. I, I think I've had done. moments in my life where I've kind of done similar things that there's something bad going on. And, you know, I feel that if I, uh, if I just do nothing, it'll go away. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's doing the same thing, except for, Yeah, I got that impression you know, too. Um, like, you, you, you just... Yeah, you think... It just seems like he is in that mindset of, like, when things start to go really bad. Like, he's just... His initial instinct is to wait for it to go away. And then you get to watch him come out of that mindset and realize it's not going to... Like yeah, because it, it him, never does, though. The, it never goes away. <laughs> That's the thing, you know? <laughs> like, when they put him in the jail cell, and, he's in, and he sits there for a bit, and then he just starts screaming. Mm. As it's like, oh, sh- fuck, I'm fucked. Mm. Um, did, you, did you find this movie funny at all? Oh, of course, it's hilarious. Is there, there are, a really funny moment? There are there are bits that I shouldn't be laughing at that I found funny. Like that that I think this movie has a scene that simultaneously made me laugh but also broke my heart. And that's the scene with his mum. Oh yeah. You know, because <laughs> it's so realistic. I, 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 I know that scene so much. You know, I don't have such a bad relationship with my mum, but I've seen relationships like that. And just, you know why he's there. He's just completely, uh, like, it's, I, I don't think it's him not giving a fuck. Like, he clearly doesn't have a good relationship with his mum. But mm. um, do, you, do you know the term disassociating? Yeah. He's so disassociated from real life and what's going on that the only thing he can do is go there, sit there, can't even pretend to give a fuck about his mum and ask her for money. Like, it's just, it was breaking yeah. my heart and hard to watch, but also... I was laughing like it was this film plays Lagu with your emotions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I also like, I'm a huge fan of uh, in films like this, when they're dealing with like criminally large amounts of money and everyone talks in these massive sums back and forth. And then you as a viewer start to, um, you know, uh, understand that how much money is worth to these people. Mm. So when this guy's talking about 50,000, it doesn't sound, it sounds like a lot at the beginning of the film. And then they start talking in terms of like 170,000 and 210,000 and stuff. And then he goes to see his mom and he owes this guy like 200,000 Russian francs or whatever the fuck. Danish uh, money. Yeah. And, um, (laughs) and then, uh, he sits down and his mum just has this, the most mum looking kitchen. She's just the most mum looking mum. Yeah. <laughs> flat, flat little flowers on the curtains and shit. And then um, 
he asks her for some money and she says, all I have is 6,000. That's all I have. That's everything. You can have it. And 6,000 is a, a large sum of money. Like that's someone's in, savings. In Australian dollars, yeah. Yeah. It, but like even for her, I'm guessing. But <laughs> it's just, it is nothing compared to the huge amount of money that he owes. And you just realize how fucked he is, how fucked his whole life is, and how separate he is from a normal caring life. Yeah. And that this dude is... Out I of guess his depth. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, super out of his depth. And he's out of his depth because he's tried to be. Like, how cold he is towards his mother, how cold he is to this this woman who adores him for some reason... He only, his only friend is, um, just an absolute piece of shit. And it's like, he is deliberately trying to sink to new lows Mm. and disassociate himself from any form of warmth or love. Um, but he, he is out of his depth because he's still nothing compared to like a guy like Milo. Hmm. Speaking of Milo, um, what was what did you think of him as a character? Uh, in the first one, yeah, well, that's the one we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah, I thought he was uh, I thought he was good. Like, um, you know, he's scary in that that way that old gangsters can be. Yeah, where he like he's all friendly on the surface, and he's like, I like cooking. I like making chicken in my house. Come on, sit down. We're friends. But you know. This guy will, will kill you and it's from, nothing. From what you... Only from what you know from the first film. Except let, let's not think about the third one specifically. But do you think he's being genuine in the way he presents himself? Um, yeah, kind of. Mo- like, like, I think he's... I think he's m- mostly genuine. But for a guy like him... It's always kind of an act. Well, to to be, you know, the king of a drug empire, you have to be somewhat of a sociopath, I think. Mm. Um, but I don't know, like, uh, all I, 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 I loved him. Like, I thought he was the mo- he was incredibly endearing. He was incredibly considerate and gave this guy all these opportunities. He lent him money when he didn't have to, you know, like, if anything, like, I, I don't find him to be a bad person. I thought no, he was actually quite sitting... understanding most of the yeah. time. But yeah, this when guy he was sitting across from fucking... Frank, I wasn't agreeing with Frank. No, I he Frank kept was in the fucking wrong. this. He just kept fucking this guy over. This guy seems like the kind of person that would give you the benefit of the doubt only so far. Mm. Um, we, did you start getting? Um, do you think this film is an inspiration for Uncut Gems? I yeah I was thinking of uncut gems and I was trying not to bring it up as I was talking because almost every point I had about Frank I was going to bring up uncut gems. This I like, think this film is an inspiration for uncut gems because they're very similar in in not in presentation but in 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 terms of their main character and how self-destructive they are and even the relationship with the girlfriend to a certain extent yeah, and, like, he keeps, you know, it seems like he's going to get ahead and then everything's going to be okay, and then he fucks it up because he's a piece of shit. 
Mm. and he's self-destructive. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it had that same level of tension, although not comically. So I like this movie more than uncut gems. Really? Uh, I thought it wasn't yeah, uncut gems, like your favorite movie of last year or something. Didn't you really like uncut gems? It was up. It was up there, but they only make a few good movies a year these days. So, um, you know, that's, that's not saying much, uh, but I, I still really like uncut gems, but I love this movie and mm. I thought it had, um, uh, a lot more subtlety mm. than, than uncut gems, like uncut gems is like, there's that point where he's like crying and being like, I'm so fucked up. You know, that, that shit would look so comical and out of place in Pusher. Yeah, no, this is... Nothing's, this is nothing's in, on the nose that much. This is incredibly raw. Like, did you know that he shot this in order? Yeah, but he shoots every movie like <laughs> like that because he gets confused. Really? Yeah, because he's... I don't know what his deal is, but he's definitely on the spectrum of something... Nicholas Winding Refn. Also, he, um, what's that other thing he does? He like, he's like dyslexic Wears sunglasses or everywhere. I don't yeah, know. he's like dyslexic or something. So oh, he fucking. He probably has the Trent Reznor thing where he smells colors or whatever the fuck. I don't know. Well, I know he, um, he writes, he writes his scripts in like little short sentences and then he like on, on post-it notes and then he pins, it puts them, sticks them onto the wall and then tries to play the movie in his head. Right. Right. I don't know. There's some, I watched it on the only God forgives thing, but he's a super weird guy. He is a weird dude. And, this but, is his um, first film. Um, full credit to him for finding a way around his, his shortcomings because it works. Uh, this is... These films specifically, I find very different to his later output, which become hyper-stylized and hyper-in-your-face with, you know, style and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I was watching this with my partner, and when she came in, she actually asked me if this was a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Just because of how, like, this film looks so fucking raw. You know what I mean? Yeah, they used... um... I was reading that they used minimal lighting. Yeah, it's mostly available light for this film. Yeah. And, and it just gives it this held. nice noisy look. And that uh, that in combination with handheld and shooting in order creates this urgency to the film that I fucking... I love this. Like an older guy in school. You know how like, you, you meet the one other person that knows shit about film? I had that in high school. I was in year nine and this kid was in year 12 and he lent me the box set of this and I was like a kid in a candy store with these films. I was like, what the fuck am I watching? I'm like used to Pulp Fiction and fucking shit Mm. like that and I'm watching this like weird Danish movie that looks like it's shot for $6,000. But a testament to him, uh, and this is, we'll go more into this later, but they, but he replicates that with all of them. It's not, it's this... It seems to be as much a stylistic choice as it is a means to what he has available, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think it, I think it was, um, which is what anyone on a low budget should do, mm. is that if you're forced to, you know, say like this, if you are forced to shoot handheld, then it has, then you have to stylize it's, it. I, I call it leaning into your shortcomings. You know what I mean? You've got to turn a negative into a positive. Yeah. 
but it works. And I mean, like, I remember, like, even at film school, we couldn't get away with things like, like, in the, the scene where he's running away from the cops, there's a point where he's running through the park and it is so obvious that the cameraman is just running next to him mm. and the camera's shaking around and, but it, it works and it's, and it's fine and it looks good, but, um, it, it'd be so hard to justify that these days Be like, Oh, you need a, you need a dolly or get someone in a car at least. I think, I, I don't know. Steady I think, cam. I think with film school, uh, one thing that kind of, you know, was, was an advantage, but also I think a disadvantage was, I think for the first film we shot, I think we shouldn't have even been able to have a tripod. Mm. I think we should have only been able to shoot handheld and then make it from that. You know what I mean? Because, you know, like you get spoiled with all these toys, you know, like I, I, we shot a, we shot a film and do you remember the the follow focus thing I had, you know, the one that we could, the guy was doing focus from like fucking 20 meters away. Do you remember that? Yeah. You know, and it's shit like that. It's like, oh, how could I ever shoot without that thing? Of course you fucking can, you know? Yeah, it's like, like, I think that, I think they had to, I think they had to justify us using all that gear that the gear they invested in to advertise the film school to people. Yeah. Cause that's why everyone was there. Cause I was like, Look at all this gear. I was uh, I was more talking about the film we shot the other year, but no, it's the same general principle, you know. Like we just we we kind of because of film school, we kind of get in our mind that there's a standard that we have to follow, where mm. you know we make the standard ourselves. And Nick here, Nicholas Winding Refn, sets the standard. He doesn't. In 1996, this film looks like it's from the fucking 70s, but mm. it's not a bad thing. You know what I no, mean? It looks good as fuck. Yeah, it looks, it looks gritty. It looks real. It looks like the way it needs to be. But yeah. I'm sure in the hands of a different person, this would look completely different. Probably a lot cleaner. Maybe not as energetic. Maybe not as interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you, did mm -hmm. you think from your limited amount of knowledge of Denmark and, you know, Europe, do you think that this is probably an honest portrayal of the lifestyle that these kind of people live? Uh, the criminals. Yeah. Yeah. I, I assume probably, I mean, like I felt like, uh, cause it was 96, right. And mm. he's a young up and coming filmmaker who I was guessing was, um, inspired by if not, maybe like the a generation of earlier crime films, but this was around the time you had like pulp fiction and, and stuff coming out. So this film fit right into that time so it was just sort of like a this sounds condescending but like a danish tarantino film right you know what okay I mean? not really but no. um i could see how it's easy to pigeonhole any crime film from the 90s with um pulp fiction there were a lot of um pulp fiction clones that came out not long after so i guess you could kind of say that but uh, i don't think that's kind of what he was going for here to be honest no, no, I don't think he not. made this be because of Pulp Fiction. Uh, no, I read his uh, influences and, and it was like a lot of earlier films, I think. But um, anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what his, uh, his idea of the, the real world cr uh, criminal underworld was. I just assume knowing that he's a bit of an antisocial nerd 
that he just watched movies and then just got all his information from movies. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I, um, this is the, these films, you, you're a big winding Refn fan, aren't you? I guess. You guess so? Kind of. I don't generally like him that much. I find his stuff quite pretentious. Mm -hmm. And these films are the exception that kind of proved the rule because I find them just the opposite of everything else. You know what I mean? Like, only God forgives is, you know... What did he say? Something about, like, every shot is a painting or some wank (laughs) bullshit you know what i mean and he's like i wanted to make a movie about someone looking at their hands and all this and i'm like shut the fuck up cunt like i don't i don't i don't like that like yeah this is a movie that is deliberately simple yeah whereas uh his later films like only god forgives are over the top to the fucking moon and stylized they're incredibly heavily stylized and he's trying to do all sorts of things that are just beyond imagination that it comes out as just drivelly wank i i I, this might be controversial but it's it's funny like those films are so trying so hard to be art house that they come back around and films like this I, i find a more art house then only God forgives, you know what I mean? Mm. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I have weird f- feelings about him. I was watching him in the, um, in the, that there's a, a web series, a YouTube series called the Criterion Closet. And they let filmmakers into the closet at Criterion, which are like the ones that re-release and reprint all the movies and stuff. And they get to pick ones and take them home. And they basically are like, imagine walking into the world's biggest movie library and you're able to take whatever you want home. It's basically mm-hmm. that. And he's in there in his motherfucking sunglasses. And I'm just like, oh, man, just just take that stick out of your ass just for one minute. Take your sunnies off. Don't be a cunt, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm I, These films freak me out just simply because they don't feel the same in any way to, to like, drive. I yeah. <laughs> you don't like um, drive? Not really. Not really. I don't know. I've seen better films than Drive. I, I like the score, but that film is one of those movies that I think ruins cinema because they inspired that fucking 80s nostalgia synthwave bullshit that's kind of ruined movies of late. So, I don't know. I have a bit of contempt for that film. Right. You know how every film these days has, you know, like very synth poppy shit? Yeah. Yeah, it's from Drive, man. Drive started that shit. I do, yeah, but I mean, like, if Drive didn't happen, it's not like all that other shit wouldn't have happened. That's just we were already moving into like a fucking eighties revival. I don't know, two thousand and eleven, man. I, I I think I think it was two thousand and eleven when that came then, out. Then then how do you not think that that guy's a fucking genius? That he's in single handedly inspiring the fucking shift in the cultural zeitgeist. Yes, but, but I don't like the direction it took. I was no, me super either. happy. No, me either. I was I super fucking happy living hated, in my fucking... I fucking hated all last decade with this 80s revival shit. It sucked. But yeah. I love Drive. Yeah, I don't know. It's... Yeah, I, well, I, think, I think we need to save Drive for another time. Um, yeah. 
this, I, I quite liked, um, what did you, who was your favorite character in this? Was it Frank? No, definitely not. I liked Tony, fucking Mads, Mads Tony. Nicholson, uh, which was also his uh, debut. Acting debut, yeah. Mm, um, it's, yeah. I hope they, I hope my cousin doesn't listen to this. He very well could, but I have a, uh, I have a cousin who's, you know, afflicted with drug, with a drug problem. And he looks and sounds and just everything about him is just Tony. <laughs> and it's, right. it's eerie. I, I just watched this film and I'm just like, that's my fucking cousin. You know? Yeah. Uh, um, like a, a manic Manic dumbass. Yeah, just a dumbass. He has the same <laughs> haircut. The kind of guy that you could just imagine just walking around town. Like, you don't know him, but you see him fucking everywhere. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah, just I know, walking around being a fucking bum. I know heaps of people like this. Yeah, you know. Guys who you just... You you just want them to shut the fuck up and think for a second. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's But they're guy. unable to take... Well, Tony and, and this kind of... Uh, comes up a bit more in the next one but he's the kind of person that does all these who fucks up all the time and is unable to take responsibility for his actions and um yeah and it's always and it's, and it's and it's doing dumb shit too like he he can't keep um frank uh so what he's meant to do what he's he what his job is for frank is that he's like the backup guy when he's doing a drug deal. You know, he yeah, you have like an extra dude there. But he can't even and do he, that. Yeah, and he's like his extra dude. And then he's doing this deal. And then as they're waiting, uh, Tony starts doing roundhouse kicks. And then he lands and twists his ankle and then he can't get out of the car. And he can't go and do his job with Frank. Just because, again, he's just being a manic dumbass. And, uh, yeah, he's heaps annoying, but, you know, he's really funny. And also, uh, I really like Mads Mikkelsen. And it was cool seeing him in a role like this. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Mads Mikkelsen in such a, um, in such an over-the-top role. I, um, his character in this one is actually quite different to the follow-up. Um, but... You know, it, it took me a little while to... I was looking at the... In in this film, he actually gets his head fucking caved in. Like, I thought he was dead. Do you know what I mean? Like, I thought they yeah. fucking, fucking killed I him. Think he pro- I think he probably was until until um, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn was forced to do a sequel. Well, yeah, let's save was, that for the next one because yeah, I, I think, think it's it was probably point. I think he was probably meant to be dead. But, yeah, uh, he ends up getting his head bashed in the baseball bat by Frank because... Um, does he talk to the cops? Is that no, he, official that he did? I, yeah, I think he, I think he, because the cops at one point say, your friends told me that it was a drug deal, all this shit. So that's why he just goes there and fucking pretty much murders him, you know? Yeah. Did that scene take you, like, uh, catch you completely off guard? Why? How did it, 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 I'm guessing it took you off guard. How so? Well, because, um, a few like so frank gets picked up and he's in jail for a bit and then he goes and talks to milo and then he's just sort of bumming around for a while until he goes to see tony and he just completely fucking loses it trashes this uh bar cafe thing and then bashes him 
bashes his head in with a baseball bat and then walks out of the cafe with blood all over his face. I was like, where the fuck did that come from? You were just chilling in the last scene. Yeah, I don't know. You know, like some people tend to find uh, erratic ways to relieve tension. You know what I mean? Um, one of your favorite, like, and, and of course it comes down to the personality type. Well, one of your favorite movies is Punch Drunk Love, am I not correct? And yeah. just out of nowhere, he just starts kicking in fucking windows. And you Yeah, know. but that's his um, disorder, which is almost what the film is about. I was, I didn't think that, I don't think, I don't think it's a fault in the film or the character because I believed it, that mm. he would do it because I saw him do it because it was a good performance and the rest of the film was good. Um, it's just, I wasn't expecting it. Mm. And it really, uh, yeah, it took me off because he was a guy who was like keeping his cool so much up until that point. Mm. Do you well, think to, his- well, to quote, to quote one of our favorite movies that we've ever watched on this, uh, through this podcast, uh, anger management, there's the, uh, the drunk at the bar and then there's the bartender. And uh, maybe he's the bartender, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Do you, did you find that his eventual breakdown uh, be- believable? So by the time he's, he's got a gun in the gym. Right. Really, did that feel like, a, like a, a, a believable track to a breakdown? Or were you like, okay, why would this guy act like that? Well, is like, this when he's he... robbing his friend? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, because you were saying before that he just doesn't seem to give a shit. Well, no, no, no. To a certain point, he doesn't seem to give a shit. He feels like he wants to he wants to ignore and goes away. And I think at the point where he's uh, robbing his friend for the money and all that stuff, I think we've already gotten point past the point where it seems like. Um, he's kind of in denial about it. Do you know what I mean? I think by that point, it's kind of stepped into that next gear of, you know, right. mania. Yeah. He's starting to, I guess like reality's setting in. Mm. If Before he doesn't he's... take this money, he will die. Yeah. 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 Mm. Mm. I, I quite, I, I know it's a strange time to bring it up, but I actually, I really quite like the use of uh, opening titles in this film. Do you know what For I mean? How the, the days of the week? No, like the you know they have the music and then it shows like top light, top lit portraits of the characters, and it just oh, says their right. names. I thought that yeah, was quite they creative. They introduce the characters. I didn't like that at all. Really? Yeah, like in was... none of them? No, no. Why is that? For, even less for the others. It's corny. Right. So you, it, does it take you out of the gritty realness of these films? Is that? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, but before I was even watching all the, cause I didn't really know much about this. I knew that Winding Refn made Pusher and I knew it was about a drug dealer. Mm. Beyond that, I didn't know anything. So the first thing I see is this like, I don't know, what would you call it? Like, alternative euro punk music playing and then the characters standing there with the 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 top lit fucking portrait and then their name 
so they're just like introducing the characters before the movie starts and i was like oh no is this gonna mm. suck now 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 that i think about it it's probably the most refin part of the movie <laughs> yeah yeah he lost all the all the other aspects of the film but that that that's the shit that he escalated yeah i am um... this like corny aesthetic yeah, no, I, I, I really like this film, um, but compared to the other two, which we'll get into in the next episodes, um, this one, I think is, I don't know if you agree, but these ones are the, this one is the most conventional story mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, like I can, I'm pretty sure there are other films that have done this pretty much same story and we've seen them a few times. Do you know what I mean? I can't cut yeah. gems as an example. Um, I think it just transcends that because the the grittiness of it, I think, is its biggest its biggest asset. Would you say? Yeah, I think. Um, also, I think he had uh, a pretty clear vision mm. and a good a good sense of humor too. Mm. And um, he, I think, he really lucked out with the the caliber of actors that he got Hmm. because he the lead actor who plays frank was a dude that was already an established actor everyone else were mostly like uh small actors first timers like mads mickelson Hmm. hadn't been in a movie before um or people who um were just in that life at a, at a small level who he managed to get to be in the film. Mm. And then uh, apparently two weeks before they were meant to start shooting, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn didn't decided that he didn't like the lead actor and fired him and he had no one to replace him with. And they'd all done rehearsals and shit as well. Um, and then he approached this guy who, again, like I said, was an established actor in Denmark. Um, and he agreed to do it. That's interesting. I heard um, a very different story. I heard that at one point, I, th- I heard that Winding Refn was going to play the lead in this film. Oh, okay. I heard Maybe. he was going to be in it. <laughs> I know he shot. Oh God. I know he shot. Um, <laughs> that would he have shot sucked, a short, man. <laughs> he shot a short film that was, um, he's, uh, that he shot as a, um, uh, as an entry for a um to get into film school but then he decided not to go to film school and just to instead turn that short film into the feature which became pusher and nicholas winding refn played the lead in that so Mm. maybe yeah at the beginning he was going to play the lead and maybe he did maybe he pulled out uh won't name people but (laughs) maybe he did pull a move um that that was uh you know uh you know, pretend to have a lead the whole time and then at the last minute fire your lead and go, well, looks like I have no choice but to be the lead in the movie, guys. Are you are and- you referencing someone whose name rhymes with Alan Starr? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to fucking name drop cunts, but... Let's call him Alan Starr. Yeah, no, that's... It'd be cringy <laughs> if that's how it was. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um- he... Uh, but, you know, then maybe everyone was like, you can't be in it. And mm. then he just happened to... But anyway, so he has, like, a really talented cast here. And also, he is just a genuinely talented director. Mm. And I think, like, his, his energy on set would have um, helped a lot 
um, with the, you know, the energy that we see in the actors here, because a lot of it is just banter between characters. Like mm. so much of the film is just Frank and Tony just talking and, and, and riffing with each other. And they feel like real people having, having a real conversation. It, it's interesting that you say that the, I think his name's Kim someone, but the lead actor is the only established one in this. I don't, I, I need to, I don't need to, I could probably go my, my entire life without seeing another movie with him in it, to be honest. But um, to be honest, I, I felt that he didn't have too much of a range. Like I, I found that he was perfectly cast for mm. who he was, you mm. know, like uh, he was the one, like I didn't, I don't find him an, like an incredibly impressive actor. I, mm -hmm. I, I look at it as more an, of an impressive feat in casting someone that's correct for the role. I don't know. I can't see this guy doing motherfucking Shakespeare in the motherfucking park. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I get, you and I definitely had um, a different take on the, the character. And maybe that comes down to the performance. Because you're saying, yeah, he didn't have a lot of range. And I'm going, wow, this guy was incredible. So restrained. Yeah, but that, that to me is like just a lack of range. No, well, what's he supposed to do? Overact? No, 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 no. Of course not. But like, I wasn't getting like the thing is that's how it comes down to like that's that it's not a it's not a negative thing at all. Like, I'm just trying to think of an example. Um, have you seen Birdman? Um, no. Okay, you've heard of Birdman, right? Yeah. So, um, Michael Keaton has an amazing performance in that film, right? Mm -hmm. but it works because of his limited range. Like he, that, that character is out of his depth, right? Mm -hmm. And here's Michael fucking Keaton, this character actor who hasn't worked in fucking 20 years on anything significant, playing someone out of their depth. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily that he's a good, like a great actor. It's the, mm -hmm. that he, the casting was amazing in finding someone who naturally presents that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. So you think that this guy worked so well because he was an actor who wasn't a leading man, but was cast in a leading role. And so was therefore out of his depth, but he played a guy who was out of his depth. So it worked. Kind of. Not necessarily that I think he's out of his depth and not a good performer. What I'm saying is that's an, like a similar example of... The, yeah, that the character and the actor share a certain thing and that's mm. what makes it believable. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not the same conundrum as Michael Keaton, but I think it's it's just it's just to, to be put to put it plainly, it's just good casting. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, whereas you know you get actors um, where they disappear into their roles and you can see them in about 50 million different things and you can't recognize them or, you know, they could be in a silly comedy and then they can be in a drama or something like that. I think yeah. he's just really well cast and he is someone who is potentially similar to this character. I don't know. Mm. Just yeah, my, I my think probably the character was written as um, a bit of a um, morose guy. Mm. Um because um, apparently the guy who he fired just two weeks before they started shooting, he wasn't happy with him because he um, uh, he was, uh, I forget the word that they used, but like boring. 
like he didn't have enough range. Right. It was like a, it was like a subdued performance. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, like I, I, I think that this guy has a. Um, if anything, there's like this underlying rage. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like it, his performance reminds me. Uh, I'm gonna reference a better actor. Do you know James Gandolfini? Yeah. The he plays Tony Soprano. He reminds me of that. Like you can just look at his head, look at his fucking face. And you can mm. see him thinking. Yeah. He's got one of those performances and it's uh, it's quite impressive. I just mm. don't know how much that could translate to other sort of stories. That's all. Um, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, I don't. I, I couldn't see him in many different types of roles, but in the same way I couldn't see James Gandolfini um, doing much else besides that. He's, right. he's, he, he's, 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 he'll surprise you. His last movie was a romantic comedy and it's a hoot. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, like it's called, uh, uh, anything or something. It, it's, he, he plays a romantic lead against, uh, uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus. I'll fucking, I'll Google it. All right. Well, there you go. There's the recommendation for. It's a little film. Great- it's a Gandolfini. little film. James Gandolfini is my favorite actor. I cried when he died and I don't cry. Mm-hmm. It's called Enough Said. Okay. Yeah. It's a- I've, I've seen James Gandolfini in, um, what's it called? The one with Brad Pitt. How did sh- No. True Romance? No, 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 no. It's- Killing Them Softly? Okay. So he's in a movie- that also has, yeah, Killing Them Softly. He's in a movie called The Mexican that has Brad Pitt in it and Killing Them Softly. Yeah. And I couldn't remember the name of it. And all I had was How to Shoot a Mexican in my he's head. Good in, he's good in The Mexican. He plays the gay hitman. Um, he's the best yeah. part of that movie. That Comes movie sucks. The, that movie does suck. But he's good in it. Also, um, Killing Them Softly isn't that good. I like Killing Them Softly. It's okay. Six out of ten. Six out of ten farts for... Killing them softly. <laughs> oh, well, I'd love to watch. Uh, I think that actually might be the worst of uh, Andrew Dominic. So maybe one day we could watch that and uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, anyway, I, I don't really have much else to say about this film. Do you? Is there anything else you want to you want to chuck in? Um, just special mention to this scene where he um, he's he's getting chased by the cops and he has the bag of heroin. And then, because it's, you know, it's not American, so they don't just shoot him. Mm. He, um, he runs into the, into the lake. The, the cops do kind of look really disappointed when that happens as well. Yeah, <laughs> he, 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 he runs into the lake and it just, you know, walks out into the water and then the cops stand at the edge and he has nowhere to go. And they're like, come out. And he's like, no, you have to come in and get me. And he's just standing there in the, in the water. Um, and it's a really funny scene. I um, I just remembered. I was I want to introduce a new segment to this show, where we look at the best and worst, most upvoted uh, reviews on IMDb for the film. Okay. So, what do you think of that as an idea? So, yeah, the most that popular good. one that ha- that has bad reviews, and the most popular one that that's a good review. So, Let's the most hear. popular ten star review. Uh, where are we? Um, Deserves more than cult fame. I think the film is almost without flaws. The dialogue, acting, atmosphere, cutting and soundtrack all mesh in a perfect unison. The director was not given the intentional 
uh, international recognition he deserves. What? Unlike Breaking the Waves and The Party, the qualities of Pusher are mainly relayed through word of mouth and websites like this. I hope it makes it big with up and coming with his up and coming bleeder. Holy shit, this review came out when the movie came out, which by the way also oh. is the name of the band fronted by the guy who scores the film's music. Wait a minute. The, the, wait, the movie came out this review came out when the movie came out 1996. Yep. Uh any anybody who uh thinks uh, tough street action with good dialogue can only be made by Yanks like Scorsese, Man, and Tarantino. Should think twice and check this one out. It's one of the best. I I, I kind of agree with him. Um, yeah, that's I think cool. that's actually quite concise. Um, that's uh yeah. His name is Mike Swee, and that was published in uh, nineteen ninety nine. So not directly when the film came out, mm. but before his follow up. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then the most upvoted bad review. Let's have a look. This film doesn't have... Okay, here we go. Nicholas Winding reference de- directorial debut is engaging zero-budget story of crime and revenge, a thriller which sees a small-time drug dealer's life spiraling out of control when his latest deal goes bad. Uh, shot on the streets of Denmark in a verite style by a director who already appeared accomplished, Pusher... Wait, what the fuck? Uh, In a fine debut feature. There are certain influences in the film with the recent release of Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Ah, so this guy's making a similar um, comparison that you made. But the style Mm. of Pusher is all all its own. Despite being relatively unknown at the time, the acting of the cast is very good. The Bridges, uh, Kim Bodina, and Valhalla Rising's Mad Mickelson. That's really weird that he uses Valhalla Rising. Like, of all the films you could mention, that's the one that you fucking remember Mads from. In particular, playing each of their... Each off each other on their... On his toes at all times. You're never quite sure what is going to happen next. That's six out of ten. Wait, yeah, why is this downvoted? Well, it's, it's upvoted, but it's a six out of ten. It's the worst review I could find. <laughs> oh okay yeah oh <laughs> yeah no. i thought i thought you were gonna pull out like a fucking massively downvoted one out of ten that said fuck movie actually was i found one that's worse uh, um it's not as upvoted but it's still got some upvotes uh What's it's down- a, it's a three it- out of ten when you're saying downvoted, no, yeah, well, so, you can uh, only do upvotes on IMDb. Yes. So what I'm, what I was looking for is the best and the worst reviews with the most upvotes. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. So the most popular review saying it's bad and the most popular review saying it's good. Do you know right. what I mean? So what's the three out of 10 say? Okay. Frank, the, the petty drug dealer and his journey through a week from hell in the underground Copenhagen drug world is a relentless in your face trip for sure. I heard this was regarded as a cult classic, and I'm starting to think it was mainly of exotic reasons, being Danish, because the film itself is just so unsatisfying. He capitalizes so. The documentary dogma style is unfortunately no asset to this film. As many scenes of dialogue uh, abound that are just plainfully obvious time filler. No mistake, I like a hard, tough film cookie in this jar of themes. 
Train Spotting or Requiem for a Dream are classic gems to compare with, but there are no touches of genu genius here, only a whopper of a problem with the blatant absence of any character to care for at all, and especially the protagonist. As with Tony Montana in Scarface, Frankie perishes slowly, agonizingly, and deservedly, so all I wish as I watch is for the script to just finish him off quicker. And many movies that accomplish that has more or less failed. So yes, drug dealing is a soulless, harsh and cold business. Too bad that goes for the movie too. So he thinks that you have to want to be friends with a protagonist for the film to be good. I'm guessing so. It's like a very- I, I don't like this guy. I wouldn't, I don't want to be him. So therefore the movie's bad. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it's very strange that he uses uh, Requiem for a Dream as an example of that because I, I, I despise the characters in Requiem for a Dream as well. Oh my God, that film fucking blows. I hate that movie. Yeah, but for some reason that that's his, you know, go-to for a film like this. I don't know. I think this guy's up his own ass, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, fuck He's that He's saying guy. that people only like this film because it's Danish. <laughs> like, I, what? <laughs> this you film... only like it because it's Danish. <laughs> it's, no, sorry, exotic is what he says, being yeah. Danish. Okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Denmark exotic. And, and he whatever. says, and he says all of the dialogue is just filler. But I disagree entirely. Like this, there's, there's bits of, and, and I know this comes more, this is more a, uh, a statement on him as a filmmaker remembering these things. But mm. every bit, a lot of dialogue in this film is loading the future in the film and in the sequels. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I completely disagree with him here. Mm -hmm. No, I really like the dialogue. I was wondering if it was. Um... Also, this guy's called Oz Jeppy, by the way. Thank you, Oz Jeppy, for your IMDb review. Fuck you, Oz Jeppy. Okay. I was wondering if the, if the dialogue like how much of it was improv, but because it all seems so specific and comes back around and it's quite clever half the time, um, I, it's like, it seems written and I just think maybe the performances were good and they just, cause it just, it flowed so naturally, you know, like, like it was a real conversation they were having. I, I, I well, there's different styles of improvisation there's just letting actors go crazy. And then there's the improvisation that me and you did when you acted in one of my films, Dan. You know what I mean? Where you kind of have a certain rule as to what you can say. And as long as it's within that boundary. Yeah, it's like hit these beats. Hit these beats. You need to make sure that this is the intention you're getting across. If there is any improvisation, I'm sure he had to approve it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm, anyway, I, I don't really have anything else to say about this no. film other than I, I really like it. Um, I think the style of the film is what separates this from a lot of films that I think are conventionally very similar. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, yeah, I really like this one. How many farts are you giving this one, Dean? Uh, gives a, a nine out of 10 farts from me. Nine it's out of real, 10. Real, real winner. Real winner. Um, just because uh, I quite like it. It's a very fun film. Makes me anxious and cringy. Um, I don't know. It's not It's not in that upper echelons for me. So the best I could give this is, I guess, an 8. 8 out of 10 farts for me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, new format, guys. So um, yeah, in the next episode, we'll be talking about uh, Pusher Two. Um, thanks for listening, and yeah, feel free to send us an email to moviebuttspod at gmail.com if you have anything you want to say. We'll read it out. Fuck it, you know. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye bye. Thank you.